always start. I was just thinking, doing the three vows just before here felt like a little Dharma talk to myself. <laughs> I was thinking, I, uh, taking refuge in Buddha is what I already have inside. I don't have to prepare madly and have bolstering in any other way. And Dharma is what's already here. So I'm already, everything around me is the Dharma. Um, so it's not up to me. And Sangha, it's all of you. <laughs> so it's all on you. <laughs> I do. Um, so I also want to, in addition to expressing my gratitude to all of you, is um, to express my gratitude toward Galen Roshi, who isn't able to be here today, uh, for all her teaching and guidance and stability uh, for all of us. And I also wanted to thank uh, Charlie Bacorny, who's, um, I took a class from him called Mahayana Ritual Practice, and this comes out of that, that class. So I, I got here this morning at 7.30 or so, and Neely was already here, as he always is already here on Sundays, getting the Zendo set up. Um, and then Vicki came in shortly afterwards, and uh, more preparations were put underway. And about that time, people started to trickle in. And um, so those early mornings before Zazen are, and service are a time for us to um, make these quick connections uh, to each other, to a hug or a question about how somebody's doing or how family members are and a time to be heard and to hear um, how our friends are doing. Um, and often we stand around and admire the Ikebana. So here's some examples of Ikebana here that I've been admiring that Gail or Sally have done. Um, and then soon it's time for Zazen and we hear the bell or we come on in. Um, so in all this process, we're moving um, from the world of our daily lives to the world of um, the ritual space of the Zendo. Um, so this place of ritual is um, what kind of structures our practice lives, and it's what I want to talk to you about today. So it might be that you haven't have opinions or that you have just a low-level sensation uh, sensations regarding ritual. Um, it may be that you're barely aware of it as a significant thing in our practice, or you might find it a little bothersome, um, uh, or you might love it. So we all have different relationships to these rituals and forms that we do. Um, so today I want to propose that um, the idea that ritual transmits information about practice to us and that it transforms us as practitioners. So in the ritual actions that are performed in Zen temples around the world, we move through a process in which our sense of ourselves in relation to the Sangha uh, and to the whole of the practice transforms moment by moment. Um, so most, most of us will 
describe this subtle transformation over time in our our relationship to these forms and these rituals. Um, so there's somebody named Stephen Hine, who's a, a scholar, and he says that ritual action is a kind of symbolic language that communicates information. So that's what I'm looking at is, well, what kind of information would that be that it's communicating to us? Um, so in that broad view, it's uh, conveying that it's conveying or giving information, all actions that are undertaken in our services and in our ceremonies, and even the bowing that we do in greeting each other and the uh, soji practice as a sangha working together, um, that communicates our sense of ourselves of, as pract practitioners. Um, and it constitutes the life of a Zen student. So that knowledge is a different kind of knowledge from what we're used to because it's learned in the body. Right? I shouldn't say from what we're used to because we're always learning in the body, but we, we're not always aware of it, of how much our body is part of our learning process. So you might be wondering if rituals are a language um, that communicates information, then uh, what is the information? Um, so a famous ritual person, scholar, Catherine Bell, said that the fundamental reason ritual activity works so well lies in its ability to have people embody assumptions about their place in the larger order of things. So we're seeing ourselves in the larger order of things. We're in a... Um, you know, we're, we're usually just thinking of ourselves in organizations, perhaps, like in our jobs or something like that, that this is a, a bigger cosmic thing, you know, like the whole universe. Where do we stand in relation to that? These rituals give us a position, show us our position in that. So while people who don't practice Zen have often envisioned it as stripped down of um, religious trappings, it just takes one visit to a Zen center to see that there's quite a quite a lot <laughs> of ritual um, that we do, um, and part of that comes from just reading Dogen, uh, the the more common uh, fascicles that he writes. So we tend to think of him as the one who gave us the idea that it's just sitting in zazen. That's all we need to do. Um, not reading scriptures or chanting Buddha's name, as he himself says in his, his koan. So um, it's funny, though, because he himself was very interested in how we move about the temple and how we interact with each other in our daily lives. So he definitely did see that Zazen had this singular power of, of enacting the Buddha way, um, that he also saw the need to organize our bodies in relation to one another in a, and that that was also an enactment of awakening. It's not just practical or utilitarian to do that. So we can look at what he wrote in his uh, fascicle Genjo Koan to see if we can find what information is conveyed in ritual actions. So he says to study the self is to forget the self. So he says this uh, in Ken Genjo Kaan, which we chanted this morning. He wrote this 
I think of it as this incantation of the self that becomes able to forget the self. So we, we, we chant it and we, it was kind of like an in, incantation where we're like, we're forgetting the self. We're working through this. We're, we're moving through the temple and these actions. And it's a way for us to forget that separate little self that's, that's, um, uh, has this eager ego. <laughs> um, so he says to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, the body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So this is a sort of a sequence. He's he's quite a poet, but he's also quite a logical thinker. He, he, he really can see a logic in his uh, writing there. So um, in that sequential way uh, of explaining the process of realization, he envisions the forgetting uh, of the idea that the self is separate from the dynamo that goes on around us. Um, and that's what constitutes actualization. Um, the enactment of ritual then, is, it's not just the ritual of Zazen, but of chanting and bowing and even soji is just such a process of forgetting the self. So the practitioner enters the temple, perhaps wearing clothing that differs from ordinary clothing. And some practitioners don a rakasu or put on an okesa when they come in or after the row chant. Um, when we step into the zendo, there's this particular form. You step in on the the one side of the door with that, that foot that's closest to the door coming in first. Um, you step in and you bow as soon as you enter in a, a gasho bow. You go to your seat. You're walking with your hands in shashu inside the temple rather than swinging your arms. Um, and you arrange your seat, maybe fluff up your cushion, put your, your material down, and then you stand up and bow to your seat. You turn around clockwise, bow to the room, and then you sit down. Or else you stand and wait for the ceremony. Um, so we know we know those 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 um, processes. We watch people do it, and we basically we can learn cognitively, but we mostly learn just with our body. We're standing here facing one way and we see everybody else is facing the other way. So we just <laughs> kind of after a while, you're the one who's leading everybody to face the way that, you know, the ceremony is asking us to face. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a process of, of gaining that uh, dropping away the self, dropping away that separate self. We're all moving together, We're all moving together and, in this ritual form. Um, so the question I think about is where does the transformation begin then? Does it begin uh, when we enter the gate outside, when we're coming in, or does it begin at the doorway when we see the first person, or when the doshi enters and opens the, the zendo? Um, so it might require hundreds of times 
of doing these ceremonies and these actions before it can be felt or cognized. And maybe we, it doesn't get cognized, you know? So many of us are here are connected to other religious traditions and, and upbringing and family and, um, and instilled in our present lives as well. So we can probably think of rituals in other uh, religions that other religions use uh, to bring everyone in the room into a communal practice. Um, in my upbringing, there was the structure of this to the service where um, we would sing and then somebody would pray. There was always a sequence there. And then they would pass around the communion trays. Everybody, everyone's holding the tray in a particular way and everyone knew whether they were going to get to <laughs> partake or not. Um, and then I can also remember the songs that were that we always sang. Um, there was always these particular songs at the end of the sermon where um, where we would sing this song of homecoming. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. It's amazing how much that feels like home, <laughs> you know, just from growing up in that tradition. <clears throat> and there's, an <clears throat> there's another one about a river. <clears throat> Shall we gather at the river? The wonderful, the beautiful <laughs> So this was part of the service where people would come forward and ask for prayers or even to be baptized. Um, and that was the rhythm to every one of these gatherings. Um, so we were trained in it from childhood onward. Um, and just learning how to sit still was a big practice <laughs> for little kids. Um, my mother had a terrible pinch. So she would, she would sit beside us, you know, my sister and I, and looking all prim and respectable. And then if if we squirmed too much or slumped, um, she would reach over and pinch us. A really mean pinch. It was like a twisty pinch. <laughs> and we knew not to yell out. I mean, <laughs> that would get even in, in more trouble. <laughs> So anyway, all these, um, all this is to say that rituals shape our experience together in a ritual community, and no matter what the community is, um, even in those that claim that there are no rituals, <laughs> that they they don't believe in rituals, um, that that particular, I think that my mother's religion, they would probably think that they don't have rituals. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So the so what happens to our conception when we think of zazen as a ritual or a ceremony? So just going back to zazen for a second and thinking that as a ritual or a ceremony. Um, there's one of our wonderful friends, Tygen Dan Layton, who's a, a priest and also a scholar, notes that the significant difference between seeing zazen as an instrumental practice, which which we can, I mean, we can think of it as as something for um, reaching startling awakening or as um, seeing it as a relaxation practice. Um, so that there's a difference between that kind of a utilitarian vision of Zazen 
and seeing zazen as an enactment of awakened awareness. So he talks about zazen as an enactment. You're acting it out. You're acting out awakened awareness. And he adds that this expression of zazen as a ceremony doesn't regard it as occurring in stages, and it doesn't look at it as an accomplishment of experts. He says that ritual practice takes the practitioner to a deeper realization than cognition would enable. And he draws attention to Dogen's Ehe Shingi, which is that, that a book that where he has collected all these different forms. It's called the Pure Standards of the Zen Community. It's a um, quite an interesting read. A little boring sometimes, I have to admit, but also very funny, you know, like tell, talking about monks not spitting into their bowls or doing random things. You know, you're just like... Who would do that? <laughs> that somebody must have done it, or there wouldn't be a rule they should not do it. <laughs> so in that book, it's like I said, it's something of a handbook for ritual forms in the way one should, like from from folding your okasa before you go to the toilet to um, bowing to your seat and that sort of thing. So he emphasizes this communal process. For which these actions, uh, for these actions, and he warns, standing out has no benefit. Being different from others is not our conduct. And I think that's really cool. I mean, it's really amazing. It's, it's very different from our, I guess, our American idea of um, individualism. Um, so if the practice is communal, not individual, then the ritual processes that the following, <clears throat> followed by each member of the community, are the bodily enactment of that community. So we're enacting our Buddha nature, we're enacting our community together. So if, if as Taigen says, Zazen is a function of Buddhas rather than Buddhahood being a consequence of Zazen, then ritual actions such as bowing, moving through the temple in Shashu, chanting and performing Soji together are also the function of Buddhas. These actions, which are done in ritual forms, are done together. Um, so we put into motion the mind of awakening. So if we think about the bodily enactment of awakening as we move through the temple, while we use this, this Zendo space for a number of different functions, we have ways of marking it as a ritual space. We, um, we can look at weekday mornings, uh, where when we sit zazen, the abbot or another doshi opens the zendo, um, and what that means is that the doan arrives, turns on the turns on the lights, turns on the, the zoom, lights the can, all kinds of different things. Doan does a whole bunch of things. That's the person who rings the bell, um, and then sits down. Others start arriving, move mindfully to their seats. <clears throat> And then um, you're sitting and you don't realize that things are still going on <laughs> uh, behind you. Um, so what the doshi is doing, the person who opens the zendo, um, the abbot first goes to the western zendo and offers incense at the founder's altar where she does three full bows. And then she goes to the Manjushri hall inside the western zendo and offers incense, bowing in a particular way. Then she comes to the kitchen altar and does offers incense and bows. And then she comes in here to this temple 
and she um, does three prostrations and then she bows three times and sits in her seat. So we hear we hear movement behind us. We don't always know what's going on, but all kinds of things have been going on. Um, it's amazing to me that I always think in the Western Zendo, Sally and Gail are making these gorgeous flower arrangements. The only ones who see them during the week are the doshi. It's amazing. The doshi and all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. <laughs> um, so all kind, you know, there, there's this, this whole, the whole compound that's being wakened, you know, wake up, we're just about to do this thing. Let's start, you know, we're, we're doing that. We're preparing it. Um, so, um, so we, so we're, we're, we hear that bell, then we sing, we chant the, um, the robe verse about wearing the Tathagata's teaching, and everyone chants it. If you, if you have an Okesa or a Rakusu or not, we all join in that chant. Um, and if you think of the warm and deep intention that infuses all these actions, the flowers, the light, the incense, um, offered at all these altars around the temple grounds, some of which are seen and not, and some of which are not. Um, you could ask, why is all this being done? Why use the long incense over there where nobody, you know, isn't it amazing? Um, so as you're thinking about it, I want to describe another ritual that's done at temples around the world um, that's, that I just think, I, I kept thinking this morning, do I need this here? And that it seems so so cool, <laughs> and I'm gonna add, I'm gonna keep it here. So it's the consecration of statues. Have you ever heard of the consecration of statues? So um, when a statue is newly carved, there are ways of bringing it to life so that it moves from being an inert piece of wood or stone to an embodiment of our practice and our faith. Um, there are many sources for learning about this practice. Um, there's one is the Encyclopedia of Buddhism, where Donald Swearer describes consecration as an active ritual that invests objects, places, or people with religious significance. So there's this, this ritual that transmutes an image from a mundane object into the nature of a Buddha. Um, and these are very ancient practices uh, you can, that you can learn about and, and even see in, uh, on YouTube. You can look for that. <laughs> um, so the Buddha image is both representational and it's a living presence is the idea. Um, and the image of a Buddha becomes an icon in that it partakes in the substance of what it represents. So the image is the locus of religious sentiment and the opportunity to make merit through offerings. Um, so consecration is this process of transformation um, so there's one part of that uh, ritual called the eye opening ceremony. Um, and they, during this last process, they wait for the eyes. They wait to paint the eyes until the very end. And then these, it's a massive ceremony. It can be days and days long. And um, monks will recite the story of the Buddha's life as a way to imprint the Buddha's story onto the image. Um, <clears throat> there are many ways of consecrating, other ways of concentrate, uh, consecrating the statue as well, such as inserting a relic or a sutra into the Buddha image. There's a lot of um, examples of that. 
and or placing the Lotus Sutra before the image during the consecration. So while these um, ritual actions are expressions of awakening, just as Zazen is, um, Dogen centers Zazen as a ritual activity that opens a way for these broader expressions of awakening. And in one of his Dharma Hall discourses, he describes Zazen as a practice which enables practitioners to trust what your hands can hold. So <clears throat> it's a beautiful idea. Trust what your hands can hold. We're sitting like this. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to think about what that's holding. The <laughs> um, universal mudra. Um, so Tigan notes that for Dogen, Zazen is a training ground or the support for the practitioner's capacity to respond appropriately to any situation from within her Dharma position. So I just want to repeat that because I think it's so good. It's so important that Zazen is the training ground or the support for the practitioner's capacity to respond appropriately to any situation from within her Dharma position. So a lot of times I'm here, I come in the morning and I'm, have just massive things to do during the day. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I got to prepare this and that. And I forgot to make this quiz and I've got to meet this person. And I forgot to tell them this or that. And I've got to get to work and do. Um, and after a while, all that drops away. And I realize I can just meet anything as it comes. I don't have to do that kind of worrying and thinking and preparing ahead of time, I can make anything as it comes. It's a, a practice of fearlessness, really, because you you are already there. You're already ready to do that. So, um, so, so there's that thing. Any situation with, from within your Dharma position. So he has this other text Dogen does called The Dignified Manner of Practicing Buddhas. And he asserts that Buddhas in the Buddha way do not wait on awakening, but instead fully experience the vital process on the path of going beyond Buddha. They bring forth awesome presence with their body. Thus, their transformative function flows out of their speech, reaching throughout time, space, Buddhas, and activities. Isn't it amazing? I just love that, that we bring forth awesome presence with our body. So practitioners often express a fear of violating these forms and, and ceremonies and embarrassing themselves by misusing the forms. I mean, everybody would feel that way. It's just normal. Anything, anytime you go into a new situation, you're just like, how am I supposed to behave? But this is extra. <laughs> um, so they definitely have a point because you can see people who have long been practicing and, and long practice does enable you to move in your body so that self-consciousness drops away um, and doesn't interfere with what your body already knows and already wants to do. Um, so this long practice occurs in the presence of others who know the practice. So like I said at the beginning, our body learns from others, other bodies. Um, when we're here in this process. So um, people who embody the practice move through the temple, entering on the left side of doorways with the left foot, <laughs> holding the hands in shashu when they're moving through in a relaxed but stable way, 
responding to the bells without wondering what to do next. Um, and over time, we all start to do that. It just sort of just comes into our flows in. So this long practice enables them to do, as Chateau says of Zazen in his song of the grass hut, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. So those hundreds of years, I'm thinking that he's probably thinking about all the tradition. So you enter a tradition and you think, oh, I've got so much to learn. I'm, you know, such a latecomer or whatever, whatever the narrative is in your mind. And he's just like, let go of it. <laughs> just, um, just move forward, relax completely, open your hands and walk innocent. Um, no grasping. So the training in Zazen and in the forms transforms us. It trans the transformation that's visible in our movements that become aware and responsive. Um, ritual is thus the enactment of transformation in the present place with the present body and mind, right where we are. Um, so if we think about this, you know, this transformation and we think about the subject, the person who's being transformed, well, what is that person? <laughs> what is that subject? So it's vital to note that forms are not a means to an end, that they also, but that they also do have a function. Um, so we can think of some of these forms like gasho. So gasho is this, this mudra and people say that it collects the mind. Um, it collects the mind and renders it attentive. I, I like that. Um, and it in forms of holding or directing the body. So for example, the full prostration that I did when I first came in, it's called it, literally in one of the translations of the Chinese, it's called throwing oneself to the ground. So that, you know, you're kind of letting go of the self. Um, and then um, the order of the service, so where the dedication goes, um, all these different things. The mind follows the body through the performance of the ritual, ridding it of pride and a sense of separateness. So this process trains us in a soft restraint and a gathering of the mind. So we are restrained. We're not, you know, moving quickly. If, if, it's just so interesting when you get used to these forms and you're sitting in the zendo, and if somebody moves in too quickly, it feels really startling. You feel like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> and you're really just walking at a regular pace. Um, so it's a little alarming when you're used to the container of practice. So this is a container that allows us to practice with safety. We feel, you know, it's kind of vulnerable to have our back to the wall and all that. Um, so... Uh, so that's the prostration, the soft restraint and gathering of the mind. Um, and there's a that's a that's our action, and that action moves the Buddhas to send down blessings. So the ritual of uh, the action of ritual engenders a turn away from samsara and toward awakened mind. There's this Tentai monk named Zun Shi, who lived during the Song Dynasty in China. And he said, our delusions are tantamount to seeing only impurity when one is in the very midst of enlightenment or producing fetters when one is already liberated. 
So there's that thing that I was talking about when I first came in and did the three vows and was thinking about the three refuges. Um, I didn't have I, the, the abundance of Dharma, the abundance of uh, truth and awakened mind is already here. Um, I don't, I don't, I can bring my body to it, but I don't have to corral it or marshal it or prepare for it or anything like that. Um, so uh, there's an article that I really love that Tension Rev Anderson Roshi wrote a long time ago about the home altar. So I really encourage everyone to think about making a home altar. Um, and he says that it's a place to express our non-dual relationship with our true nature. He said, we need some way to encounter this intimacy of all beings with the awakened ones, a place to express the tender feelings of being Buddha's child. And, you know, sometimes we don't think we need a home altar and then things happen in our lives and we really need that. It's a, it's a very uh, grounding experience to have it. Um, so now I'm going to go to back to the Genjo Koan to this last little bit of the Genjo Koan that talks about Bauche was spanning himself and, and a monk approached. So <laughs> I started the talk with this reference to his Genjo Koan and I want to think about it now of Bauche fanning himself. So Dogen says, do not suppose that what you realize becomes your knowledge and is grasped by your consciousness. Although actualized immediately, the inconceivable may not be apparent. Its appearance is beyond your knowledge. And now he gives the koan. The, um, so he's, he's basically saying, you don't even know what's happening in there. <laughs> you're, you're, having, you're going through awakening and you're just not grasping it. There's no way to grasp it with your conscious mind. Here's an example. And then he gives us the koan. So he said, Zen master Bao Che was fanning himself and a monk approached, where am I? Um, and said, master, the nature of wind is permanent and there is no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? And Bao Che says, although you understand the nature of wind is permanent, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. So the monk says, well, can you tell me that? <laughs> Why? What is the meaning of it's reaching everywhere? But the master doesn't answer. He just keeps fanning himself and the monk bows deeply. Uh, it always irritated me. I was like, just answer. Give the answer. <laughs> but if you do, if I do, you know, if somebody does that, you yourself don't have the chance to open it up for yourself. You know, it's, it has to stay a puzzle for a while before you can, um, and maybe a puzzle forever. Maybe, maybe you're always, it's always a puzzle and you keep coming back to it and seeing it in a different way from your different practice positions. So Dogen now concludes it and kind of explains what he's talking about. The actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its correct transmission is like this. If you say you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. The nature of wind is permanent. Because of that, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. So all that is very poetic language that 
is it's giving us something to work with, but it's not giving us a flat, you know, denotative answer. So we have uh, Shohaku Okamura Roshi, who who wrote a book called um, Realizing Genjo Koan, which is just a, a, amazing. And he says that um, Dogen's chosen route to explaining the nature of practice realization is the well-traveled road of practice moment by moment. So Dogen had this word called practice realization. It's a hyphenated word that he uses. Um, and in that word, we can glimpse the, the, the why, why the movements of the body in relation to other bodies, the sounds of one voice and a group of voices has deep meaning. If our practice is realization, um, there is no separation. So Dogen says in one of his informal talks that essentially beginners of the way should just practice the way following the other members of the Sangha. So there's some concern, I think, at the beginning that the beginner's mind is a really amazing mind. It's a right mind for practice, and you don't want to get rid of that beginner's mind to rush over to, to the expert's mind. We all want to keep our beginner's mind as we're practicing. So then Dogen advised, do not be in a hurry to study and understand the essential points and ancient examples. If you practice following other, the other practitioners, you will surely attain the way. It is like making a voyage, even though you don't know how to steer the ship. If you leave everything to the skill of the sailors, whether you understand or not, you will reach the other shore. So I, I was long puzzled by the story of Bauche um, and the monk at the end. And um, I'm all, always having this feeling like I'm the one, I'm the one who doesn't get it. <laughs> and everybody else is like, oh yeah, I understand that. <laughs> so Okamura is this great reader of the sutra. He says, wind nature refers to Buddha nature. So the wind in that you could think of is relating to Buddha nature that's just constantly going through us. And he suggests that in the monk's question of why Baoche needs to fan himself, rests the key shift that took place in the Mahayana Buddhism regarding the idea of Buddha nature. So in the early teachings that Buddha nature teachings were called the Tathagatagarbha, and there's a sutra called the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, in which Buddha nature is described with the imagery of something perfect being covered over with something tainted. So you have this beautiful, pristine Buddha nature, and it's covered over with dung. You know, you have to get rid of all that before you get to the beautiful Buddha nature or something like that. But um, there's this important Mahayana text called Awakening of Faith. And it described uh, the idea that Buddha nature, like wind nature, is everywhere and in everything. So Okamura links the metaphor of wind there to the ocean metaphor that's used in this, this text called Awakening of Faith. The water represents absolute suchness and the waves that are generated by the wind of ignorance uh, represent the phenomenal mind. So in the scenario of Baoche and the monk, Baoche is enacting the practice. He's sitting in the midst of samsara and he's practicing. 
the monk assumes that if Buddha nature is everything, there's no need to do anything. Um, the monk ass assumes that there's no need to actualize Buddha nature, that it takes two. You got you to move forward. You have to make your own move toward it. So just as I told, have these all these old songs from my family's religion still in my memory, and I can write out the order of their service, um, even knowing the taste of the communion, <laughs> um, so do we in Zen steep ourselves in this practice realization on each occasion that we put our bodies into alignment with those of our Sangha friends. And we chant the old words and bow to the consecrated statues. May this practice bring us a sense of warmth and remind us of our connection to everything in the world and give us the heart to heal the world around us.